Hello and welcome to In Beta, where we ask the big questions about human rights in the digital age. I'm Charles Bradley, GBD's Executive Director. Last week, the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, gave a speech at the United Nations General Assembly. She covered a fairly wide range of issues, but one part of her speech in particular has caused a stir. Let's listen to a clip here. And we must also step up our efforts as never before to tackle the terrorist use of the internet. The tech companies have made significant progress on this issue, but we need to go further and faster to reduce the time it takes to remove terrorist content online and to increase significantly their efforts to stop it being uploaded in the first place. This is, to put it lightly, a significant thing to say. The, the measure Theresa May is outlining here, which is also backed by France's President Emmanuel Macron, would, among other things, impose a target on tech companies to remove content deemed to be terrorist in one to two hours. If a company failed to, to meet that target, it suggested they might face a fine or another type of penalty, which would, in effect, mean tech companies having to play a much bigger role in regulating online content. It's a proposal which raises the difficult question that is the title of today's episode of In Beta. Who gets to decide when online content should be removed? Now, it isn't the first time this question has come up, and it's previously been answered, at least in a, a narrow legal sense, by the concept of intermediary liability. Let me give a little bit of background here. Um, intermediary liability refers to the extent to which online platforms like Facebook and Twitter are, are legally responsible for content shared on their platforms. In many jurisdictions, including the US and the EU, companies are shielded from any liability for this, for this content, which, which means that they can't be punished for the content that their users upload or share, even if the content happens to be illegal. Under intermediary law, tech companies are treated as neutral platforms rather than, than entities with editorial responsibilities. Now, there are practical reasons for this. It would be almost impossible for companies to operate at the scale they do without some shield from liability. But it's also important for our freedom of expression. Without these laws in place, we're, we'd likely have greater censorship and regulation of content. This proposed measure by May and Macron is striking as it seems to challenge the, the, the principles of these laws. It's saying that tech companies should, in fact, be liable for the content they host and may be punished if they don't take it down quickly enough. It builds on and escalates a trend We've seen over the past um, few years of increasing pressure on companies to take action on not just extremist content, but also on child pornography, on cyberbullying, abuse and harassment. And it's important to note here that the pressure isn't just coming from governments. It's also coming from ordinary users and, and civil society groups working on these issues like child safety and, um, and violence against women groups who have very legitimate concerns. So in this episode, I want to think about a few things. What does this speech and other recent changes in rhetoric around content removal actually mean for, for freedom of expression online? What would a shift in content liability look like in practice? And how can we respond constructively as human rights defenders? Now to discuss all of this with me, I'm delighted to welcome a guest who has a great deal of expertise on content regulation, interview liability, Emma Lanso, the Director of Free Expression at the Centre for Democracy and Technology, CDT. Emma, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Great. Well, first off, um, can I ask you what your thoughts are on Theresa May's speech um, we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast? 
is there a shift taking place? Yeah, the um, the the comments by um, Theresa May uh, last week were, I don't know, they were they were a combination of shocking and not much of a surprise. Um, on the on the one hand, you know, we've seen a huge increase in the rhetoric, even just over the past few years, around um, online platforms and social media companies in particular. You know, people saying that they really need to take down more speech faster and more comprehensively and just huge pressures towards ramping up the the takedown process um, for online content hosts. So in that sense, it wasn't, you know, much of a surprise. But I think what's what was particularly shocking about um, about the comments was this idea that that it's a good idea to put something like a two-hour time limit on um, on a platform to be able to detect and remove something as amorphously defined as terrorist propaganda or extremist content. Um, that is just a an incredible ask to make of any kind of content host, regardless of how big or small they are, um, and is certainly going to lead to... Uh, just a, an over-reliance on, on takedown and overbroad application of any kind of policy or law against particular um, content. And so I think it's it's definitely a risky proposition, um, and I hope one that can be sort of discussed and investigated and, and ideally moderated um, pretty significantly. I think um, a big part of this question, as you started to allude, is the 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 actual um, mechanisms by which tech companies would be able to achieve this and, and regulate at such scale. Um, I know this has been an area that you've been working on for a while. So could you tell us a little bit more about how they might do this and whether you think it's even possible to meet uh, these requirements of one to two hours? Sure. Uh, so, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, scale is really the, the whole game for content moderation online. Um, the kinds of numbers and volume that um, even a smaller medium-sized content host is facing when they support user-generated content is really just enormous. It's something that we haven't, that, you know, no kind of publisher or facilitator of other people's speech has really had to grapple with in the past. Um, you know, I think the, the latest stat from YouTube is something like 400 hours of video are uploaded loaded to YouTube every minute. Um, that's, there's just no chance that a person um, or team of you know hundreds or thousands of moderators could review all of that content before it gets posted online. So if there's this sense that there must be immediate detection of potentially unlawful material, um, there's just simply no way to have enough humans doing review to, to really catch that and catch material before it goes up. That means that this kind of call from Theresa May for you know a two-hour time limit would absolutely drive platforms in the direction of using um, automated tools, trying to detect material um, you know without humans involved uh, through use of you know algorithms, filtering tools, hash matching. There there are a number of different techniques that um, that a platform might use, but one thing they all have in common is that they are not very good. You know, you can use, um, think of keyword filtering. We've all probably experienced some kind of keyword filter where it becomes pretty clear that to post a comment on a particular site or a forum, um, you can't include 
standard sort of curse words or, or swear words. Um, but it's also, we've probably all had the experience of seeing how trivially easy it is to circumvent those kinds of keyword filters. If you're really just looking at matching a particular word or phrase, humans are very creative with language, right? It's a key feature of the species and people will figure out a way around that kind of filter. Now there's been a lot of talk recently about the kind of the promise of artificial intelligence and machine learning and really improving um, the, the algorithms that can detect potential hate speech or terrorist content um, on social media. And, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting computer science research question and, and a very interesting computational linguistics kind of question. Um, but it rem fact remains, today, the state of the art is far from being able to accurately gauge what is hate speech or what is, um, you know, glorification of terrorism um, from one comment in the midst of thousands or, or millions. Uh, it's a very complex question, um, identifying what is hate speech. And uh, at this point, you know, technology is just is simply not there. Um, we've actually been looking at some studies of these kinds of tools, uh, trying to evaluate um, the, the accuracy rates of, you know, algorithms developed to try to identify um, hate speech on Twitter, for example, and seeing that, you know, some of the best ones out there get about a 70% accuracy rate. That's an interesting kind of science or research question. But if you're thinking about actually implementing that kind of tool, um, and especially if you're implementing it in a in a situation where you need to detect and decide to take down speech within two hours of it being posted, you're talking about, you know, three in 10 of the posts that you identify with this tool actually being perfectly legitimate, acceptable speech that has, you know, that isn't the hate speech that you're trying to find. Um, and that would be a huge consequence for users if, you know, if 30% of the takedowns that companies did were just completely on the wrong track. Um, that's a lot of protected speech that's getting censored because of this incredible pressure from the government. That's really interesting. I think it's good to sort of see what the um, the, la the latest in the sort of tech trends are, um, and 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 where the sort of the the field is moving. I think that there's um as you, as as we said that the scale issue is going to be so so important, and this is sort of one of the reasons why we see um, governments sort of putting the pressure on tech companies rather than um, uh, doing it themselves. Um, and one of the obviously the mechanisms by which they're trying to get um, co companies to act um, is this uh, the sort of the, the restrictions of uh, the protection of intermediary liability, um, which we've had for, for for so many years and has been quite powerful and, and, and important for the neutrality of of, of platforms. Um, what do you see as the sort of the the key sort of human rights challenges associated with the imposition of liability for content on tech companies? Um, I think it, it's helpful to think about the sort of the role of intermediaries in terms of the incentives that they have and how those are similar, but in lots of cases, really different from those of traditional publishers. So if you imagine a traditional publisher, like a newspaper, um, who employs, you know, maybe a very large staff of reporters, but still a known quantity of um, people who are writing content that the newspaper will then publish, um, and one of those reporters writes an article that gets challenged, maybe under defamation law. Um, the newspaper has, as a publisher, has a lot of incentives to 
push back against, um, you know, that kind of lawsuit if they think it's frivolous. Uh, if they, you know, they've done the fact checking up front, they've put time and resources into the development of that content. And as a publisher, they have an incentive in maintaining a sense of um, independence and standing behind their journalists, standing behind the people who are creating the content for them. Um, so when you kind of, when you tie the liability for any particular article to that entity that's publishing it, you know, the, the writer and the publisher have a lot of incentives very much aligned. When you think about a host of third-party content online, so many of the key criteria there are very different. The host is, you know, they probably, they want to have users. They generally want to give their users a good experience so that they keep them and continue growing. But they don't know up front who all of these people are who are writing. They don't review material before it goes out because they can't due to just the sheer amount of it. Um, and when push comes to shove, if one of those posts gets challenged as potentially violating a law, you know, the the intermediary doesn't have that same incentive to say, uh, you know, necessarily to say, I'm going to stand behind the user, I'm going to push back on this, I'm not going to take it down. We sometimes see intermediaries doing that, and that's fantastic. You know, it's, it's I highly encourage content hosts to push back against, um, especially, you know, dubious requests from government to, to censor content. But at the end of the day, if the question is, you know, continue hosting this one post that's very controversial or risk getting the entire site blocked or, um, you know, facing lawsuits over dozens and dozens of different posts. The simplest, easiest, most cost-effective approach for an intermediary is going to be get rid of the small number of problem posts um, so they can continue doing whatever else, you know, whatever they're really intending to do with the platform. Um, so that means that, you know, all of the incentives can, um, when the intermediary themselves faces liability for user content are stacked on the side of taking down um, user speech. And that's where, you know, we really start to get concerned about the ability for governments to pressure intermediaries to act as censors on behalf of the government without due process protections for the speaker, without, you know, the sense that a neutral independent arbiter like a judge has decided this speech is illegal and it's appropriate to order the intermediary to remove it from their platform. Instead, a, a kind of a general sense of interme intermediary liability is that the, you know, the entity hosting that material has to weigh, do they want to waste time in court defending speech that they'd never even authored um, or make the, make the issue go away, make the case go away and um, do that with a, you know, a quick takedown. I think that the, um, the, the, the debate um, is, uh, is super interesting at the moment because what we're seeing is uh, an increasing challenge around the amount of content which is either illegal or harmful um, and, a, and a particular um, movement from uh, civil society groups outside of the free speech community putting more and more pressure on both governments and companies to do more. So we know there's a, there, there are legitimate concerns and there is uh, a legitimate need uh, for more to be done to ensure um, you know, safe spaces online and, and, and regulate content um, in, in some way. But what are the principles which would underpin a sort of a rights-respecting, effective approach uh, to content regulation? And are there any existing models of content removal um, which function well that we could be learning lessons from? 
think the the principles that should underpin all of this are, you know, the the same human rights principles around freedom of expression um, that we've had for decades. We need, you know, clear definitions of what is legitimate content for governments to pursue as, um, you know, a violation of the law. Similarly, when companies are enforcing their own terms of service, they need to be clear about the standards that that they're creating and um, enforcing on their platforms. Uh, It should be no surprise to speakers, to people, that a particular kind of statement um, or particular content is against the law. You know, if if it's if there's a big mismatch between what people understand to be lawful or permitted on a platform and the the action by the government or the intermediary to take down that speech, something has already gone wrong. Um, but there's also you know key due process protections that we have. I was re- referencing a little bit earlier around how government pursues censorship, how they pursue um, you know takedown or or silencing of a person's speech. Um, This is not supposed to be something that is unilaterally done by law enforcement. It's not supposed to be something that's done, you know, through informal pressure on the right weak links in a chain um, to ultimately, you know, reach an end of censorship without actual kind of tracing it back to the government. Um, government's supposed to, you know, take speech to court uh, as supposed to get, you know, determinations from independent um, arbiters that speech has actually violated the law. And this is an issue where, you know, obviously the scale question comes hugely into play. Um just as companies who host third-party content are facing enormous questions of scale that we've really never grappled with, so too are governments. And so we hear a lot that, you know, there's so much illegal or, I'd say, allegedly illegal speech online, um, and something has to be done about that. But we don't hear nearly enough government talking about how they will respond to their own obligations to provide due process under the law, um, to, you know, to pursue illegal content in a fair, accountable, transparent manner, um, that's that's another place where we need innovation. We need to think more carefully about what does it look like to have independent review by a neutral arbiter at scale. Um, that's, that's not an easy question, and that's going to take resources. That is certainly going to take a lot more investment from government, but you know, that's the direction that I think we really need for the long-term health of our democracies, for maintaining a sense of rule of law, um, for maintaining, you know, appropriate role of government in the sphere of content regulation. We really need to be thinking about how our governmental institutions do need to change and adapt to the very different environment for speech that the internet has brought to all of our societies. And then, you know, the same kind of due process um, recommendations that are that governments are obliged to provide to us are also things that companies should be providing as well when they're doing terms of service enforcement and other kind of voluntary efforts at takedown. Um, it's, it's certainly an area where a lot of social media companies could really improve, you know, giving notice to their users about why their accounts are deactivated or their content has been taken down, um, giving people the opportunity to appeal those decisions. Because one thing that we know from, you know, dozens and dozens of news stories is that companies make mistakes all the time. It's no, it's no surprise given the scale that they're operating at, but you know, not a week goes by, it seems like, where there's not another story about 
a journalist or an activist or an advocate of some sort who's had their account shut down on a social media platform um, because there was a confusion about whether the person was, you know, commenting on hate speech or commenting on terrorist propaganda or reporting on, um, you know, atrocities in a war zone or was actively advocating for those. Um, it's a tough job. I mean, nobody has tried to censor this much speech uh, or evaluate and regulate this much speech on this scale, you know, ever in human history. Um, these are new kinds of issues that we're dealing with. So we have to have systems both from the government and from the, the private intermediaries that leave room for addressing the errors that will inevitably happen, uh, you know, having accountability for the decision makers um, who are deciding that speech needs to come down uh, and ultimately improving the processes, um, you know, kind of on both sides. And I think one of the, um, one of the interesting things here is that the, the, the challenges seem to be so great on both sides of the table for, for, for governments um, and, and all the sort of challenges around due process and, 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 and dealing with a, um, you know the the 19th century government functions in a, in a 21st century world, as well as all the tech companies. And I, my last question really is sort of where do where do human rights defenders um, sort of position themselves in this debate, and what what can we be doing um, to uh, to sort of effectively engage in the in these conversations and and push forward a, um, a rights respecting um, model of content regulation. I mean, I do think it is, it's a battle with multiple fronts. Um, it's, uh, for the kind of discussion with governments, I think we all do need to challenge this idea that more takedown of speech faster is actually the right end goal and is the appropriate direction for um, for government policies to be focusing. Uh, you know, it's, it's no surprise how governments would get to that point, right, if there's an obligation to... Um, deal with illegal content and there is much more illegal content that is visible to them and to the entire world um, thanks to online platforms, then doesn't that just mean there's a greater takedown effort that we have to engage in? But it is a really, really um, dangerous and concerning route to go down, this idea that we need perfect enforcement of content law, you know, content regulations and, and laws prohibiting different types of speech kind of across the board on the internet. It's, I mean, it's something that we've struggled with online since the, you know, opening up of the public web. Um, jurisdiction questions arise, due process questions arise, uh, but also the kind of the intense pressure for kind of comprehensive um, takedown of illegal speech is just a filtering mandate by another name. And that's something that, you know, in the, the e-commerce directive um, has long had a provision against uh, mandatory filtering obligations because of the very obvious um, overbroad enforcement consequences that that would have. So I think as we look at how governments are promoting kind of responsibilities for intermediaries, um, we need to really keep in mind that, you know, that call for take down more speech faster has significant kind of ethical considerations. The only way companies are probably going to even get close to complying with that sort of thing is using automated tools that we know don't work right now. And so if governments are out there calling for requiring companies to use things that will definitely over broadly censor speech, that's not the right angle for um, for governments to be taking. It's a really difficult question, right? I mean, the but I think taking that step back and realizing that 
we need to rethink the approaches on, you know, in all of these different dimensions from the government side, from the company side, from the user side um, is key. And it, that's a difficult argument to advance, um, especially in the current environment. Uh, but that's where I'd say, you know, for the, for the long-term health of the online speech ecosystem, that's where human rights defenders really need to, um, to be pushing. And then with the companies, you know, of course, I think there's a, a lot of work to be done there too. There's huge discussions right now about the power that a very small set of online platforms seem to have over availability of information and access to audience and to potential, you know, listeners of individual speech. Um, those are big questions. Those are, and again, things that we haven't really had to grapple with as societies and certainly not as interconnected, you know, one big interconnected global speech environment. Um, so I think there, you know, we, we certainly come back to needing more transparency from companies about the kinds of decisions that they're making, both at the individual granular level of which accounts get taken down, which posts get censored, but also what are the values and incentives that they're trying to maximize when they, you know, develop algorithms that promote certain content over others or direct, you know, certain content towards people from a particular demographic and other ideas towards other kinds of people. Um, that's a, that's a hugely powerful kind of influence that companies have. Um, and it's something where, you know, to have thoughtful public policy discussions about this, to have, uh, you know, a, a real understanding of what the human rights implications are of all this, we all need a lot more information about what's going on to be, even have a partially informed conversation. Thanks, Emma. So this has been a really enlightening discussion. It leaves me with a lot to think about and outlines some potential ways we can move forward on these issues as human rights defenders, which is great. That's all we've got time for today. So I'd like to once again thank my brilliant guest, Emma Lanzo. If you'd like to find out more about content regulation and the role of intermediaries, the CDC website is a great place to start. And if you're listening to this on the GPD website, we've put some useful links up on the right-hand side of the page. Finally, and if you haven't already, just a reminder that you can subscribe to InBeta on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever program you use to listen to podcasts. We're on episode six now, so do take a listen to others in the series. Until next time, goodbye.